by the time we got to like books five and six, kind of whoever, you know, whatever, whatever the next chapter needed to be, whoever was free could do that. So it started out, we would split it up by character. But by the time we got to books five and six, yeah, Daniel's right. It was whoever had time. Uh, because by that point, we were we were also producing on the television show. Yeah. I'm Michael Tamlin, CEO of Rakuten Kobo. And this is Kobo in Conversation. My guest today is James S.A. Corey, author of the science fiction series The Expanse and better known to their friends and family as Ty Frank and Daniel Abraham. The Expanse takes place in the future, but not too far into the future, where humans have overcome the challenges of interplanetary travel to colonize much of the solar system while still behaving as humans always have, competing for power, forming and breaking alliances, and going about their human lives. But now, as a spacefaring people separated by millions of kilometers for the first time in history. Since the publication of Leviathan Wakes, the first book in the series, a groundbreaking TV series was also created, briefly canceled, rehomed, and now nine books later with Leviathan Falls, the books and TV series draw to a close. Ty, Daniel, welcome to Kobo. Thank you very much for having us. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that your intro assumed we have friends. Yeah. Really nice. <laughs> yeah. I mean, listen, this is your opportunity to set the record straight if that happens to not be the case. <laughs> Interviews like this are always tricky because there are people who have never read the series who might be interested based on what they hear here, and we want to draw them in. And then we have hardcore fans who want to talk about whether the spaceship at the center of the books, the Rosinante, stops often enough for refueling based on its propulsion system and the amount of maneuvering it does. So... Let's start wide and we'll work our way inward. And uh, if you, the listener, find things getting too insidery and you don't know what we're talking about, then you can uh, drop out and read the books and then come back. If you were to give a, a short description of The Expanse as a work of fiction to people who had never encountered it before, what would that sound like? Well, uh, I mean, well, you go oh, first. Go ahead, man. Daniel. No, no, you, know, you take this one. If you got a good answer, I want, I want to hear it. No, it's the it's the it's the answer we always give, which is that um, we we pitched uh, a sci-fi story that took us between um, Apollo thirteen and early Buck Rogers. We felt like there was a lot of stuff in the in the Star Wars, Star Trek, Buck Rogers space. We felt like there was a lot of sci-fi in the sort of post Apollo thirteen space. Andy Weir doing amazing work there. A lot of people working in that space, but we really felt like there weren't a lot of people bridging the two. And so we wanted to, in one book series, try to bridge the two, which was, it turned out fairly ambitious um, and probably stupid, but, but we, we did it to try. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't let it be in a bad idea. Slow you down. Ty, this began for you as a video game project. The plan was to build a massively multiplayer online role-playing game of the World of Warcraft style, uh, but set in space. How far down that road did you manage to get? Uh, not very far. We, uh, so I was working with uh, a friend of mine named Emily. We were pitching to her uncle's company. Um, so uh, I, I wrote up what is basically the outline for The Expanse um, in that process, then Emily and I took that to her uncle and he took it to the company. And very quickly, we got back an answer of, we can't spend a hundred million dollars on this. What's so the matter it, with them? Yeah. So it, it ended pretty fast, but I, you know, I still had all the notes that I had written up um, for that pitch. So that's where it started. Both of you have worked with George R.R. R. Martin, author of the Game of Thrones series. What did you do with him and where were you in your careers when that was going on? Well, that's a that's a very uh, disappointing answer on that one. <laughs> um, for me, I, I I don't think Ty actually worked with George creatively much. Did you? I mean, it was all that was all kind of office stuff. Yeah, creatively, I I I never did anything. Um, we never wrote together. I did some research for him, but. But, you know, it's not like we ever worked together on writing. George was one of my teachers at the Clarion West uh, 
writer's workshop back in 98. Uh, so that was where he started seeing the work they did. And he, uh, I live not too far from him. So when the time came to, to adapt some of his work into graphic novels, he knew that I, you know, wasn't so far away. He couldn't drive down and beat me up if I it up. So, um, so I got some of those gigs and then I, collaborated on a novel called Hunter's Run with him and Gardner Dozois. Um, and that was, it was fairly early in my career compared to where, where we are now. We haven't done a whole lot recently. It sounds like as much as you may have been kind of exposed to him, you learned how you didn't want your writing process to work. Um, you know, thinking about how he approaches a novel and the kind of torturous process that that goes through you together took a much more structured approach to yeah. to making that's, these happen. That, that's not that's that's not something where you look at George and think, oh, I don't want to do that. There's just it's just different brains approach this process differently. Um, yeah, I don't think we ever did anything in reaction to George. Yeah, that, no. that we you know we looked at what he was. I mean, honestly, if if we were trying to to emulate something or or have a reaction to something George was doing, we'd probably try to copy him because he's gigantically successful and really um, good at what he does and yeah, yeah i mean I, I i i would happily uh take one of his royalty checks uh if if i could um you know emulate the kind of work he does but yeah i think i think we just had our own process and it it had almost nothing to do with george's process yeah no I, and and we've had conversations that that uh i mean i think we came into this with a very uh kind of particular worldview that we we had talked through a lot when we started the project and uh, it, it informed all of the things that we did with the the novels and the books and it's just not as um historical as, as some of the stuff that george does we're much we, we both felt very comfortable letting people come in and tell their stories and then kind of drop out of the overall narrative daniel how did you two first get together well, time moved to uh, Albuquerque, where I live, and um, Emily, the Emily he was talking about earlier, was in my writer's group and said, my friend Ty is coming to town and everybody should be nice to him. And so I tried to. Um, and it, yeah, it was OK. It was all right. It was not, uh, you know, I, I'm, I don't always give a great first impression. And, but he lived close to me and we were in the same writing group and um, he eventually invited me over to his place to uh, play console games and degrade my productivity on Wednesdays. And that was kind of how we started hanging out. And at some point you see this, you know, this binder, this collection of material that had been, that had been assembled for the video game that didn't happen. I had just had a, a kid. Um, my, my kid was, I think, not even walking yet when Ty showed up. And, and Ty was running a tabletop role-playing game for a bunch of the writers up in Santa Fe. It's about an hour mm -hmm. north of me. And I couldn't go because, uh, you know, I've got a kid. Can't, can't uh, do two hours in a night um, commuting in order to play. And then it just wasn't going to work. It's the end so, of so many promising role-playing game yeah, careers. Absolutely. Uh, the arrival of children. <laughs> No, it, it messes with the schedule. Um, and so Ty very kindly ran uh, kind of an instance of that game here in town for me and our wives. Um, and yeah, then I got to see how much work he had done on it and how much how kind of the depth of research and imagination and storytelling that was like already there. Um, and I'd written probably four or five novels at that point. I kind of thought I knew how to do it. You know, he'd done all the hard part already. So, and and who said let's write some books together? Oh, I did. That was me. And so, Ty, this guy who you sort of know, who's you know, who's uh, um, <laughs> who's kind of in the community, says let's write some books together. Was that an easy thing to say yes to? Uh, well, I mean. For better or worse, I've kind of spent my whole life just saying yes to whatever random crazy thing people said. Um, I, I, I am a person who likes trying things. And so, I, I mean, I'd written before. I, I had a published short story and I'd mm -hmm. written probably 10,000 pages of game stuff by that point. So it's not like I 
was terrified of the process of writing. Sure. Uh, but obviously I'd never written a novel before. I'd never even considered writing a novel before. Had no idea how you even went about doing that. So when Daniel, who had written a couple novels, said, let's write a novel, I was like, well, I mean, this bike has training wheels on it. I'm not going to get hurt. I might as well say yes. So, yeah, it was, it was pretty easy to say yes. Uh, but I also, you know, I mean, it didn't feel like there was any risk. You know, if we got 100 pages into it and it wasn't working and we just stopped, nobody was going to die. So it was an easy thing to say yes to. And from... The material that was there, how much of what we've seen today in the series, what we've, you know, what we see on the screen had already been mapped out you know, between settings and people and politics and alliances and, and personal dynamics. What did that seed look like? The stuff I came up with for the, the game pitch was really just the setting and the technology level and some basic elements like that. Mm -hmm. um, who, who, you know, what the big bad was with the protomolecule, um, that stuff. But uh, a lot of the other details were developed in running this as a tabletop role-playing game. Um, that's where the idea really got play-tested. And there were a bunch of people before the New Mexico crew that had already been playing in it for a couple of years at that point. And so uh, a lot of details about the world-building came through that process. And then more details came when um, when Daniel and I started working on uh, the, the plot. So the plot of Leviathan Wakes was probably 60% already there when Daniel and I started working together. Uh, you know, and the two of us came up with the other 40%. But the plot of all of the books after that was completely a joint project between Daniel and I. So when we finished the first book and said, if we wrote more, what would they look like? That Daniel and I worked together to plot the, the other eight. So... That that was a that was that was a joint effort at that point. Space opera is a genre that seems to have had surges of interest and then you know decades of quiet in between. And when you when you started this project, the conventional publishing wisdom at the time that you were putting the first book out, Leviathan Wakes, was that the genre was kind of played out that this that this wasn't where the focus was, um, and. Was that in your mind at all as you were diving into it? Or did the idea feel strong enough that you were going to be able to punch through? Well, you know, I, more we weren't that concerned with the market. Um, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't looking to uh, find the thing that was the most um, kind of politically savvy thing to publish. I was looking to do this thing that Ty had that was cool. Right. Um, and we had people who came and told us that if we wanted to write together, we should really write a fantasy because fantasy sell and space opera doesn't. And, uh, yeah, you know, I, I've written fantasy. I, I'll tell you, this sold better. I don't know. It's, uh, uh, <laughs> For anybody who's interested in your, uh, you know, in your writing process, how two people write together, uh, there are all kinds of interviews out there and we'll, uh, We'll we'll save you the trouble of answering that now. What a good Google search will do. There are only two quick questions that I want to touch on with that. The the first was getting started as you were first starting to work together. How long did it take for you to find that groove of uh, of being able to you know to produce work as a team? One session. Yeah, uh, I don't recall wow. it taking very long. Yeah, Daniel Daniel came over the first time. And uh, said, "Okay, tell me what happens at the beginning, and I'm gonna write. I'm gonna write those chapters." And he wrote uh, a prologue and the first Holden chapter, mm -hmm. and that was what we thought the process was going to be: me telling him the stuff, him writing it down, um, and then he left. Like a good division. Yeah, and then he left, and I was reading through it, and it just if just didn't feel right. There was something wrong about it. And I don't, and it's not because it was badly written. Daniel's a very good writer. It's not that it's just, there was something that wasn't quite right. So I just went ahead and rewrote it uh, the way I would write it and sent it to Daniel and said, how does this sound? And Daniel was like, yeah, that's, that's great. Why don't we split it up? And so I, that's why I wound up writing all the Holden chapters and he wound up writing all the Miller chapters in the first book is because of that. And really, the James S.A. Corey voice is 
one of the two of us doing a first draft and the other of us doing a rewrite pass creates that voice. And if either of us write without the other doing a rewrite pass, it doesn't sound like Jimmy. Yeah, that's just true. Although, although I will say that, that Daniel has gotten very good at, at sort of uh, mimicking other writers' voices. That's what a skill set he has. He's gotten much better at nailing Jimmy's voice on a first pass than either of us was at the beginning. But but none of this none of this is ever just the one of us, uh, or it doesn't it doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. But one of you is generally responsible for the first draft of a particular character. Is that uh, yeah? That, is that was beginning. More, that was more true at the beginning. That was that that became less and less true as the the books went on. By the time we got to like books five and six, kind of whoever you know, whatever, whatever the next chapter needed to be, whoever was free could do that. Right. Um, we, well, we and, were... and at least for books five and six, uh, so it started out, we would split it up by character, but by the time we got to books five and six, yeah, Daniel's right. It was whoever had time uh, because by that point we were, we were also producing on the television show. Yeah. Uh, but the other thing is we would talk about what the chapter was about and we started dividing them up by who, which of us was most interested in the theme of that chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, there are things Daniel really likes to write and there are things I really like to write. And so we started dividing it up by who would enjoy writing this chapter more. 3,000 words of romantic failure. That's Daniel. Okay, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> Can you give me a couple of other examples of things that are just you know, either Ty's go-to or Daniel's go-to in terms of, um, you know, either particular topic matters or kinds of scenes that uh, that uh, just naturally fall to one or the other of you. Well, especially at the beginning of this, um, Ty was way better than me at doing action scenes and, and the kind of the choreography of action and space battles. And and the so the... the um, you know, I could try, and as this is, you could tell, I, I wasn't into it. Um, and he had a, he was really good with that. So for a long time, he was doing that. And eventually, I kind of learned from him how to do that. Um, but, but a lot of the, the kind of swashbuckling and, and action scenes and uh, the, you know, the fun part, um, a lot of that's tied. Well, and that, and that makes it sound like he, he learned all this stuff from me. Yes, action scenes, but literally everything else is what I learned from him. So, so the, the needle is still way on his side of this thing um, because things like uh, chapters with a lot of physical description. Uh, yeah. Daniel had to teach me how to do that. I hated writing. So my, my thing is I hate reading long stretches of, of description. If I'm reading a book and I hit a page and the whole page is a description of a feast and whoever was wearing at the feast, my eye just sort of drags across it diagonally until I hit the first line of dialogue and then I start reading again. Um, and because of that, I didn't instinctively write it. And so Daniel would go, Hey, this conversation is really cool. Who's in it and where is it taking place? Because I can't tell, um, you know, like it's just sort of a conversation in a formless white void. So he had to teach me how to do that. And I did eventually learn the tricks of physical description and how to, how to do it. But uh, so Daniel's saying, I taught him how to write action. There's there's about ninety things he taught me how to write, so it's don't don't read too much into that. One of the things people have found so compelling about these books is that big social, political, historical ideas get explored over the course of these books and the novellas and short stories that have been placed in between. Is there an an arc or a progression of ideas that you're working through across the books? Um, you know, there are times when it's, you know, now we're looking at, you know, concentration of capital and now we're looking at colonialism and now we're looking at, you know, empires and falls of empires is the, you know, are you thinking about these as, as explorations of particular ideas or are these like plot backdrops that help keep things moving along? I don't know that we've ever talked about anything in the books in the sort of way you would talk about like a tract or a a treatise on a topic. You know, Mm -hmm. we never approach it that way. We always approach it from the standpoint of what's, what is the most interesting story to tell. Yeah. And so in that way, yes, the things are sort of backdrops at the same time, both Daniel and I are very interested in 
some some of the social issues that we bump up against. And I think that interest bleeds into the work. Um, but I don't think we've ever sat down and said, hey, you know what we should do? We should really write a deep dive on, um, you know, like uh, uh, refugees. Uh, we've never mm-hmm. sat down and said, let's let's write a really deep dive on on refugee issues and our feelings on refugee issues. But when we write a story that includes a refugee problem, we both have strong opinions on how, you know, those issues should be handled. And I think that bleeds into the work for sure. And, and so much of uh, the plotting is stuff that winds up, you know, pulled from history um, and, and historical references and, and uh, historical patterns that, you know, those, those things come up again and again and again and again and wind up feeling um, pointed just because the organism doesn't actually change. You know, the stuff that was the dumb stuff we were doing uh, in Babylon, we're, we're doing now. It's, it's uh, a way that I think the, the project has really um, profited by kind of humanity's inability to change in any meaningful way. Does it feel strange knowing that there are university professors out there using the expanse to explore the Marxist theory of subsistence and imperialism and colonialism and concentration of capital? I think it says something about how far university education has fallen. I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't actually know. <laughs> I don't know. That's okay. uh, I, my, my, my career as an academic is brief and, uh, unstoried so if they think that's a good intro for people i god bless them and i hope they're right as we come up to the ninth and final book of the series or at least final for now because good characters and settings have a tendency to revive themselves set the stage for us what are we jumping into as we get into this final book well we we have we have a bunch of promises we have to pay off yeah um okay yeah you know i mean obviously there's some things that have been resolved across the course of the series and some big questions that have never been resolved. And you want to resolve in a satisfying way as many of those questions as you can before you leave. And still, you know, I mean, you know, I, I think, I think the, the tight wire act you do when you get to the end of something. And, and Daniel and I talk a lot about, because uh, we work in TV now, we talk a lot about TV shows we watch. And one of the things that I see repeatedly where endings fail, and I have a couple shows in particular I'm thinking about right now, is you get to the, you know, set up a lot of intriguing premises, a lot of intriguing questions, and then the last episode tries to answer all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it just, it just, you just don't stick the landing that way. So I think what we're trying to do here is thread that needle where we answer enough of them that it feels satisfying. You feel like you've got the answers to the questions the first book, book asked, and still leave some mystery in the universe, still leave some, some ideas that aren't fully dredged up. Um, that's, what, that's what we're trying to do with the last book. The Expanse has always felt like a sci-fi series that cares about science. You know, physics are generally adhered to, you know, issues of life in vacuum and low G environments and, and asteroids, uh, you know, and how they would be you know, mined or exploited or settled. Do each of you or do either of you have an area of science that you're kind of trying to take care of or make sure it doesn't get too, uh, too violently beaten up in the, in the course of writing? I think we both came to it with different um, kind of knowledge sets that we could apply to it. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, I have a biology degree. So when it's uh, talking about evolution or kind of, you know, how proteomes work or um, kind of good moves in design space and kind of evolutionary theory. I have a pretty deep bench on that. And so I can, I can draw from that. Um, Ty did a lot of research on uh, astronomy and kind of understands the, the uh, real estate of the, the solar system in a way that I, I, I don't particularly. Um, and so he has that. And, and then we argue a lot about physics. And, um, and since we started doing the TV show, we argue with Narain about that. And yeah, it's just, it's, it's, I think 
sort of the educated layman's amateur hour for most of it. And it does pretty good. Well, Noreen Shankar, the showrunner on, on the Expanse show, uh, has a PhD in applied physics. Or no, no, excuse me. He, he has an engineering PhD, uh, but with a, with a focus in applied physics. And when we argue about physics in the writer's room, I win about half of them, which I feel that's not a bad. pretty good track record. Yeah. <laughs> so about half the time I win those arguments. Um, so I feel like I'm doing okay in there. Well, and I, I think I recall hearing um, one of you say in an interview that, that just by adhering to the general behavior of gravity, that alone introduces a huge amount of realism into, uh, into what you're writing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, go ahead, go ahead Daniel. Now you take it. Oh, it's just, it's, it, I was getting ready to talk for Daniel because I was saying the thing Daniel always says is by itself, that makes you feel like hard sci fi because so, so much of sci fi, that popular sci fi, uh, the sci fi that people grew up with, mostly on TV and in movies, just hand waves away gravity. Right. They just, it, like, it's never an issue. Um, you know, the ships are laid out like ocean liners and people are walking around, um, with, you know, the thrust from behind them rather than from below them. And these ships go, you know, dozens of times the speed of light and stop instantly. And no one is ever discomfited by this fact. Um, so gravity just doesn't exist there. Uh, and so just by saying, you know what, if you're going really fast and you stop suddenly, um, everybody in the ship slams against the other wall really hard. Suddenly it's like, ooh, this is, this is hard sci-fi because people fall down when the ship stops. Um, it, it, it felt like the bar was pretty low there. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and in fairness, the, a lot of the, um, the decisions we made creatively on how to uh, deal with realism, especially in that first book, um, were dictated by the story we were telling. You know, if we didn't have a sense of groundedness, we didn't have a sense of realism, then when the protomolecules started doing strange things, they didn't seem strange. You, you had to have that for the story to do what the story needed to do. Uh, and so we, you know, we listened to the story uh, about what it needed to be in order to work. And then we did that. Yeah. And, and you know, we we're talking about George earlier. That's, I really think the genius of A Song of Ice and Fire is... There's no magic in it. It feels like you're reading the first book. You read Game of Thrones. The first book, there's no magic. It feels like you're reading about, you know, uh, feudal England mm -hmm. with, you know, kings and princes and dukes and, and uh, you know, the armies are just people on horses with swords. There's no, there's no magic. There is that little hint at the beginning with the, with the White, White Walker, Walkers. but you don't know what that is, right? It, it, this thing shows up and it seems like it's scary. It kills some guys and then it's just gone and you never talk about it again. So at the end of the book, when Danny births the three dragons, it feels epic. It feels so amazing. But if, if, every, if that whole book had been people casting spells and shooting fireballs at each other and zombies and witches and, and warlocks, when the dragons were born, it would just feel like another thing that happens. It wouldn't yeah. have felt like a big moment. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the genius of that book. And he slowly begins feathering magic into that world across the series. So that by the time you get to the late, the most recent books, you've got red priests who can bring people back from the dead and that sort of thing. And it feels like we gradually got to that point. It feels like an evolution of the world. And I think, I think that was what we were trying to do with protomolecule. Have it, have it be the one weird thing in the world. Everything else feels real. And then there's this one weird thing. Um, that, at least that was what the attempt was. Yeah. Let's talk for a bit about the TV series, The Expanse, where you are both writers and producers. Had either of you worked in television before you entered the writer's room for The Expanse? Oh, Lord, no. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I was, I was working for George when Game of Thrones was being made. And he, he was writing one script a year back then. That was the first couple of seasons he wrote one script a year. And he would go out and visit the sets while they were shooting. And I would tag along for that. So I kind of, I, like, I was the guy tagging along with the guy who's sort of working on the show. So, like, many, many levels of remove. But I kind of saw how it worked from, the, from that, like, 30,000-foot view. But no, no nothing, nothing like what we started doing later. 
Yeah, no, we were we were not at all um, qualified to do any of the things we wound up doing on this for the first several years, and uh, it was it was uh, a massive education uh, with actually some really good teachers. I mean, the the writers' room for the Expanse was a great place to to kind of break into that medium. How did you first find your place there and how has that place evolved over time? When we first went in there, we were really kind of um, there as a, a tool for continuity. Um, mm -hmm. We were there to say, yes, you can do this, but here's what it breaks in season four. Yes, yes you yep. can do that, but here's kind of why it's not a great idea for the overall arc of the story. And, 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 um, and that was sort of what let us get into the room. Um, and then it turned out we weren't bad at the other stuff either. Does that match your take, Ty? Well, I was just going to go back a little earlier than that, which is just that um, Daniel and I were so ignorant that we didn't, <laughs> yeah. know, we, we didn't know the things we weren't supposed to ask for. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when they were first developing it, we asked the... Uh, the president of Alcon TV, the Sharon Hall, she was the, the producer, the EP on the, the first season and really was the one who put the show together at Alcon. Um, we just said, hey, we want to write a script too. Can we write a script too? And Sharon was like, sure. Uh, you guys can hang out in the room and write a script. We didn't know we weren't supposed to ask for that. Well, that was a big deal. That's a huge Yeah, we didn't deal. know that. So uh, the, the way Narain tells the story is when when... Sharon said, oh, yeah, and the writers of the novel will be in the writer's room. His response was, are you sure that's wise? <laughs> <laughs> he, he was not sold on that to begin with, but it worked out well. Generally, fans are happy with the way the books have ended up on screen. And that is the exception rather than the rule. Is streaming services are filled with the wreckage of book-to-screen adaptations with you know, fans turning on them or where it's just failed to capture the magic, were there decisions that you made or that were made at the, at the beginning of the series that helped to avoid that fate? The story that I know is uh, in the first season, one of the executives at the network, and I'm not going to throw this person under the bus. I mean, this is the kind of thing, you know, executives have to say to do their job, but but one of the executives at the network said to Narain, don't feel like you have to stick with the books. You know, you uh, write the show you want to write. And Narain's answer to that was, but we have these books, we own them, and there's a reason they're popular. Why wouldn't we do the thing that's in the books? And I think there is a conventional wisdom in Hollywood that, that Hollywood writers know better how to tell a good story than novelists do. And that um, when you get a book, what you're really buying is the title and the fan base, and then you can do whatever you want. And I think that's changing. I think that started changing in the last 20 years. Um, but it, that was the old conventional wisdom. And uh, showrunners like Narain really are the ones who sort of pulled it back the other direction and said, no, no, if we're, if we're buying this thing and it's popular, Let's let's keep the things that made it popular. Let's you know. Let's try to find what why people engage with this story and keep those things. And I think because of that, because of people like Narain and and there's a, others out there working, you're seeing really great adaptations. You know, mm -hmm. even in in film, you know, like The Martian was a fantastic adaptation of Andy's book. Um, you, Game of Thrones, the 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 first couple seasons of Game of Thrones, when when it was still based on the books, obviously they got ahead of the books at some point, but. But the first few seasons, when it was based on the books, I think most fans were thrilled with that adaptation. Uh, I, I, I I'm still a huge fan of Queen's Gambit. I think yeah. the that was another really I would loved that book for years before they adapted it, and I was very pleased with the adaptation on that one too. And and all of those you describe sort of fit that mold of a model of adapting material that's post screenwriters know better. In defense of uh, the the uh, studio executive, who shall remain nameless, um, the way that you tell stories in books is very different than the way you tell stories in script. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I struggled with 
a lot was figuring out how the toolbox that I was used to using uh, failed to translate into uh, filmed entertainment. And, and I think there is a danger at, in being too slavishly um, tied to the source material too. The, there's a, a kind of a, a sweet spot where you can change, a, you know, you can change quite a bit actually and still have it feel like the same story. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not sure, I don't you know, I think that's actually kind of a hard place to hit. I mean, if you look at the, if you look at the expanse, we changed a lot. There's a lot that we altered or, or um, consolidated or uh, took a different path to get to the same place. Um, but it feels like we were very faithful to the original because um, we were very faithful to the, the spirit of the original. You can change details, but you can't change the story. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Elves can show up and help at Helm's Deep. It's still the Battle of Helm's Deep. It's still, you know, the the last fight of the the, the the great battle of humans versus orcs. It's still, you know, I mean, all of those, the story stays the same. The fact that some elves show up to help out doesn't change what the story is, but it's definitely a change in the details. And I think that's where adaptation can work is you can change some details. Um, but once you start changing the story, that's when fans begin to, I think, buck against what you're doing. You lost a character in the TV series for reasons that had everything to do with the actor and nothing to do with either the books or the TV series. How do you then go and bridge that gap and then write another book afterwards um, and, and figure out what to do with that character? Well, you know, anytime you're dealing with people, um, you, you got you to gotta have a little bit of flexibility. Um, the books never changed. I mean, the... the mm-hmm nothing that happened in the TV show ever fed back into how we were writing or structuring the books. So that was, you know, that was pretty solid the whole way. Um, and yeah, you know, actors drop out of a project sometimes. And fortunately we have just a whole bunch of other actors who are also uh, really dedicated to the project and really good at what they do. And, and we had this, you know, great, toolbox to work with for telling the story. Yeah. I, I don't know. I felt, I felt pretty good about it. Right? Yeah. The, the books inform the show, but we've worked very hard to make sure the show never informs the books. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a one way street there. And I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about your reading lives before all of this. If we looked on the bookshelves of teenage Ty and teenage Daniel, what would we see? I was way more into fantasy back then than I am now. I sort of fell out of fantasy, but I, my mom gave me uh, The Hobbit when I was a kid. So I had, I had all of the, all the Tolkien stuff. I had all the Tolkien ripoff stuff too. Yeah. Um, because when you're, when you're 14, you don't know the difference. So as long as there were elves and sword fights and the occasional dragon showed up, I was reading it. Yeah, and no, I, I had very, I, I, I was an omnivore growing up. I mean, I, I had a bunch of that fantasy stuff. I had a bunch of uh, Larry Niven and Arthur Clarke stuff. I had a bunch of uh, Dorothy Sayers mysteries. I had a bunch of, you know, I was reading Margaret Atwood, probably way too young. Um, I, it, pretty much anything that I could stuff in my eye holes, I was, I was uh, doing that. And my dad... Um, my dad was fluent in is fluent in Spanish and spent a couple of years living in Colombia and he would translate uh, South American stories to me on the fly things that hadn't been put into English yet he would he would read to me uh, in English so I mean it, the science fiction is like one of many uh, threads in my reading life growing up. Yeah, the other thing that I had a ton of on the bookshelves, and this matters for the expanse, is yeah. uh, collections. I, I was really, really, really into short stories, so I had I had dozens of books of collection, uh, dozens of collections of short stories on the shelves, and uh, like 
Clint, like uh, Asimov put together a short story collection called Before the Golden Age, which a bunch of sci-fi written in like the mm-hmm. 30s and 40s. Um, and I, I read that cover to cover a couple of times. Um, but there was the, the important one is I had a novella collection that had five classic novellas in it, one of which was The Star is My Destination. And uh, I read The Star is My De- and I had that. I got that when I was probably like 10. I didn't read it. For a couple of years because i just had it on my shelves but I, stars my destination is not a good book for an 11 year old but i read i read that novella probably a dozen times like literally the first time i read it i went back to the first page and reread it again what was it about it that grabbed you well there's a couple of things one i think golly foil is a fascinating character because he's you know i all the other sci-fi i was reading and fantasy i was reading there was heroes you know, there's Aragorn. He's a hero, right? Even Boromir, who turns out to be a bad guy, he is the hero. He's heroic. He just, he, you know, he falls to the, the lure of the ring and, and pays the price for it. But, but he's a hero. Um, all, you know, all the Heinlein characters were heroes. And, you know, I mean, everybody's a hero, right? And then you get to Gully Foyle, and he's not just not a hero. He's an actively terrible human. He's, he's a drunk and... Uh, a, a rapist in, you know, trigger warning. Um, he's an awful human, but he's fascinating. And this, the evolution of this, this sort of gutter human into what he becomes all in the quest of, of revenge. He just wants to get revenge. And the whole book is about trying to get revenge. And so there's that part of it. I, was, I had never read a character like that. And then the other part of it is that Bester would throw away five novel length ideas per page just like the, the 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 speed with which he moved through novel length ideas as just sort of filler on the page was astonishing um i don't think i've ever read anybody since then who can pat who can use more novel length ideas as just background info without ever diving into it than that guy he, he had an astonishing creativity I mean, it, he, he invented cyberpunk as an aside. <laughs> <laughs> In the time since this series has started, are there, are there books, are there other media that have nudged you or influenced you or provided you with ideas or material along the way as you've been building at The Expanse? I have a really hard time engaging with what I'm making. So I'm actually I'm actually really far behind reading uh, contemporary science fiction right now because I've been I haven't haven't been doing it for the last ten years. Most of what I've been reading have been um, crime novels and, and mysteries. Um, so I don't I mean I don't I can't think of anything that was anything recent that was really plugging into uh, the expanse. I mean I can look at some mm-hmm. old stuff. I mean I. I I can draw a line between uh, some some Larry Niven stuff and uh, what we did, but but recent stuff, I'm not sure. Man, I still read pop uh, biology a lot. The I I think there's some stuff that I was reading about uh, fungi and and parasitism. There, there's a really awesome um, YA vampire novel uh, called Peaks. I think Scott Westerfeld, um, the guy who did Pretties and Uglies and The Risen Empire. Anyway, he wrote this vampire novel for uh, the YA crowd that is also um, an introduction to parasitism. So it talks about the logic of parasitism and gives examples of parasites. And I I wouldn't be surprised if there was some of that that had uh, seeped into, especially Siebel Laburn. Ty, how about you? Yeah, I, I, I also haven't read any sci-fi for <laughs> it feels like the last 10 years. Yeah, I, people, people keep asking me to, to you know, or, or Daniel and I both to do, um, you know, to read, read books and give, uh, give quotes and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I keep wanting to say yes. And then I keep thinking I haven't read a sci-fi book in, in seven years. I don't even remember what, what it is. Uh, History. I read a lot of history, but I mean, I don't read like specifically history books. I um, 
I, I find articles on specific periods in history or specific topic, historical topics that I want to read. And then I read a lot of, I, I, for pleasure reading, it's almost all been horror. Um, uh, I became a huge Joe Hill fan when I read his book in, um, in uh, John Joseph Adams' Zombies book. It, it, John yeah. Joseph Adams did a, a zombie collection uh, anthology I don't know how long ago was that like 10 years ago, 12 mm -hmm. years ago, something like that. Yeah. And uh, Joe Hill had a story in there, which was the only story in the collection that did not feature, feature an actual zombie and was far and away the best story <laughs> in that collection. And I was like, who's this Joe Hill guy and started <laughs> reading everything he wrote. And so in the last 12 years, I've read, you know, all of his novels, all of his, he's put out several short story collections and, uh, and then a novella collection. Um, and, and then it turned out and unrelated to that, I've my whole life. Don't judge me for this. I have read everything Stephen King has ever written. And so I was reading all the new Stephen King stuff coming out. And so at some point in there, I discovered the relationship between the two of them, but I didn't know that at the beginning. So, uh, I had been reading everything by that father and son team over the last, the last decade. Yep. Daniel, did I hear correctly that you are a, you're a bell hooks fan? Oh yeah. No, bell hooks is one of the best uh, thinkers about American culture that I've ever run across. Yeah. She's, she's amazing. And it was the, it was the will to change was I think well, the, 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 the yeah. change is the one I always kind of hand out to people. Um, the, uh, the time that I really, she came onto my radar, um, a friend of mine who is uh, actually a Buddhist chaplain for the, uh, I think British Columbia prison system, um, gave me a, uh, an article that she wrote in which she explained why she would not condemn the misogyny of two life crew. And who's, and it's just going, okay, yes, there's a bunch of misogyny in two life crew. Let's dig into this like two levels deeper. And let me just tell you why I'm not going to take a stand on this one. And um, ever since then, I've just followed her wherever she goes. Um, she's, she's a, uh, she's somebody who has a completely different life experience than mine. Um, and whose description of the world matches my experience and describes the world that I see. And, and that's uh, a rare and beautiful thing. I hear that there is a new series uh, contracted to orbit that you're, uh, that you're starting to think about. Can you tell us anything about it? Well, it's another space opera, but it's a very different part of the kind of space opera spectrum. Um, again, it's, a, it's an idea that, that uh, Ty brought to the table and I thought was awfully cool. Um, and yeah, no, it's, it's you know, the, the way we talk about it is um, kind of the way that Arthur Clarke and uh, Larry Niven and, and CJ Chera and that crowd um, informed The Expanse this is more of uh, the, the disappointing love child of uh, Frank Herbert and Ursula Le Guin. So it's, it's uh, just a different part of the, part of the literature. And it's, and it's me continuing to plunder uh, ancient Babylon for all my story ideas. Turns out it's a good place. I didn't know. And it's and it has the advantage of also being very dormant IP. Like your, you know, the the uh, the rights lawyers aren't likely to come back it, at you on it. It's true. Uh, so everybody everybody is a classicist. Everybody loves the Greeks. Everybody loves the Romans. You know, everybody's into that classical history, and the pre classical stuff is fascinating. Uh, I, I was much more interested in in you know the Persian Empire and the Babylonians and the Assyrians. Those guys are much more interesting to me than than the romans they're you know i guess because you know in high school all your all your history books have romans and greeks in them and nobody talks about the babylonians so when i was reading about the babylonians on my own i was like these guys are cool man why doesn't anybody talk about this stuff so we uh daniel and i have plundered ancient babylon and and it's and it's neighbor states thoroughly for story ideas fantastic you guys have been doing this for a while Every interview means that you're telling certain stories 
over and over again or giving certain answers over again. Are you nine books in at the point of hearing a question and then going, uh, he always gives this answer and it drives me crazy. <laughs> no, I, I, um, I hear a question. I think, well, shit, what did we say last time? I don't remember. Ah. <laughs> you know, I'm, I, my guess is if you went back and looked at a bunch of the interviews we've done, I, I have been probably 85, 80% um, kind of consistent in my answers. And then the other 10, 15%, ah, I'm just making shit up. I don't know. Pure, pure freestyle. Yeah, pretty much. Excellent. Ty, how about you? It's, it's not as bad. So uh, when, I, when I worked for George, I would, he had a house that he used as his office. Um, and he sat in one room of that house when he, where he worked, and I sat in a adjacent room where I worked, but I could hear him. You know, he, if he left the doors open, I could hear him. And of course, this was during the Game of Thrones TV show, so he was doing multiple interviews a day, all day, every day. It was just constant. And it did get to the point where I could, I could say his answers along with him. Um, I could tell, even if I couldn't hear the phone, I could tell what question he had just been asked uh, by, by the rote answer he was giving. And at one point I offered, I was like, if you want me to just take these interviews for you, I can. I don't sound like <laughs> you, but I will give exactly the same answer you give because I've memorized all of them. We're not quite that bad yet. We haven't reached that point where Daniel is giving answers that I've memorized. But it does create that possibility of, you know, should one of you just have a complete equipment failure, the other one could do both sides of the interview at the same time. Probably. Yeah, we could, we could fake it. Ty, Daniel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. I have been speaking with the component parts of James S.A. Corey, author of The Expanse, the final installment of which, Leviathan Falls, is out now. Find all the books in the series as well as the books that we've been talking about at Kobo and Conversations Home, kobo.com slash conversation. Check out the show notes for a link. Subscribe wherever you listen to make sure you never miss an episode. Kobo in Conversation is produced by Nathan Maharaj and hosted by me, Michael Tamlin. Thank you for listening.